A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 31, Getting the Band Back Together. So we come to the end of the journey. When the History of Rome podcast ended, I really didn't want it to. It had given me such a better understanding of the ancient world that it had changed my life. It changed my attitude to reading about Roman history, to travel, and to podcasting. When I decided to continue the story... I knew that I could only commit to take it on so far before reassessing. And the obvious place to stop was the end of Justinian's reign in 565. Not only because it was almost a century after the fall of the Western Empire, but because it was the last time that the Roman Empire was a superpower. One of my favourite history books is Colin McEverdy's Atlas of Medieval History. I cannot recommend it or its companion atlases more highly. They are the closest thing to the history of Rome that I'd found before podcasts. They present the sweep of world history on one unchanging map of Europe. Just through the shading of the map, the story of the Roman Empire was brought to life, as this tiny dot of a city-state gobbled up its neighbours, expanded out of Italy, conquered the Mediterranean world, and then began to shrink. As the unity of Roman shading disappeared in the West, the inevitable decline and fall of the Romans was communicated very clearly. The Eastern Roman Empire, covering merely Turkey, the Levant and Egypt, didn't seem very impressive to me. But then came 565 on the map, and the amazing sight of the Romans fighting back to reconquer their land and reshade the map as Roman. And who was the emperor who did this amazing thing? Why Justinian, of course. Between first reading the Atlas and the History of Rome, I'd begun to understand that Justinian's conquests were not all that they might appear. But I had no idea until I began the podcast quite what a fascinating story they represented. Today, that story comes to an end. But we have more ground to cover before we get there. Last time... We left Justinian triumphant as Italy was finally annexed, Cusro asked for permanent peace, and Byzantine troops took control of southern Spain. As you know, this happy-sounding situation was far from it. Misery follows war, as does famine and economic depression. The Byzantine Empire had recovered enough of its strength to provide Justinian with the resources he needed to finally make his reconquest stick but the empire had little else to give. 
Throughout our story, I've hinted at the discontent many people felt with Justinian's rule. His oppressive laws and tax policy, his unpopular wars, his bullying attitude toward religion. So much muck was hurled at the emperor behind his back that Procopius calls him a demon, sent to destroy the Roman world in his secret history. Those who had seen the plague as a sign of divine displeasure would often point to the emperor as the obvious culprit. A series of natural disasters in the 550s would further cement this point of view. The first arrived in 551, when a catastrophic earthquake struck near Beirut in modern Lebanon. The city of Beirutus and its famous law school were destroyed, and the quake caused a tsunami, which then washed miles inland, adding to the destruction and dislocation of many coastal settlements. A contemporary estimate was that 30,000 people died in Beirut alone. Of course there were imperial relief efforts, but there was little that could be done. Such was the devastation. In 558, another earthquake rocked Constantinople. While not comparable to the one which hit Beirut, it did cause extensive damage and death for many miles around. A few months later, its after-effects became apparent when the dome of the Hagia Sophia collapsed. The repairs would have to wait, though, because as the citizens of the capital were recovering from their seismic shake-up, the plague returned to their streets. The death toll was less catastrophic than its previous visitation, but only by comparison. Again, the streets filled with the dead, and there was mass mourning. Those watching in horror noted that the young were disproportionately affected. We know why now. Yersinia was working its way slowly around Europe, waiting for the next generation to grow up without the acquired immunity to fight back. Once the outbreak settled down, Justinian had to accept that he had done his last bit of conquering. Any recovery in population in the last 17 years had been wiped out, and along with it, the tax revenues. Peter Barsimis had to be called on to become Praetorian Prefect again and return to gouging the rich to make up any shortfalls. There would be no reinforcements to send to Spain from now on, and it also took five years to repair the dome of the Hagia Sophia when during the boom of the 530s, it had taken only six to build the whole thing. The earthquake also damaged the long walls in Thrace, which would soon lead to trouble. The Danube frontier had been quiet for most of the decade, but with news of the plague's return, the Bulgars got ready for another raid. They crossed in the spring of 559, along with some Slavs and a group of Kutriger Bulgars. With the army of Illyricum no longer distracted by the Italian campaign, the majority of the invaders were driven back once they reached Thrace. However, around 7,000 Kutrigas headed for Constantinople to raid the suburbs. When they defeated a detachment of imperial troops, Justinian became concerned. Although the Theodosian walls were unlikely to be breached, there were technically no troops available to man them beyond the palace regiments. 
It was also a humiliation for a man bragging about his control of everything from the Atlantic to Mesopotamia to have his own capital threatened by a barbarian horde. Panic began to spread in Constantinople as refugees from the Thracian plain came pouring through the gates. The emperor had to do something, and in a story which sounds like it was made for TV, Justinian called for Belisarius. The retired general, now in his fifties, was asked to lead the defence of the city. He gathered a small army of volunteers, veterans and guardsmen, and devised one of his old strategies to deal with the threat. He marched out to meet the invaders and built a camp for his men before they came into contact with the enemy. He lit as many fires as he could to give the impression of leading a much larger force. And the next day, as the Kutrigers approached, he gave his most inexperienced men the instruction to bang on their shields and make as loud a noise as possible, again to mislead the approaching horsemen. Meanwhile, the few experienced troops he had were given javelins and arrows and hidden in the surrounding woods, so that when the Bulgar riders charged straight toward the exposed infantry, they would be taken by surprise. Sure enough, the Kutrigas approached Belisarius's position and were assaulted on both sides while a very loud infantry force marched toward them. Spooked and losing men, the Kutrigas turned and left. Instead of hailing Belisarius as victor, though, Justinian made one of his rare trips out of the city to take command of the situation. He sent envoys to pay off the Kutrigas in order to get them to release their captives and leave the Balkans. The emperor also sent word and money to the Utiga Bulgars, again encouraging them to attack their neighbours, and the conflict which followed would end up enfeebling both tribes. Perhaps paying them off was a wise move under the circumstances. But as he returned to the capital, Justinian rewarded himself with a triumphal procession, leaving some to wonder if the old jealousy of Belisarius had been his real motivation in leaving the city. Some would argue, though, that Justinian deserved his triumph. He had certainly achieved a lot, and one of his pressing concerns was now to secure a lasting peace with the Sassanids, so that his conquests would not be threatened from the east. The process of negotiation took many years, with ambassadors travelling hundreds of miles back and forth to discuss every last detail. The final agreement was signed in 562, and will sound quite familiar to you, as it involved all the issues that have provoked war between the two powers during the history of Byzantium. 1. The Persians were to guard the Caspian Gates and Darial Passes to prevent barbarians from entering either empire through the Caucasus Mountains. 2. The Ghassanid and Lachmid Arabs were to abide by the peace. This was particularly important since the outbreak of the plague... Both Persian and Byzantine border forces had been allowed to dwindle, and the tribes had taken it upon themselves to escalate their conflict. In the last episode we heard how Harith, the Ghassanid chief, lost a son to Mundir, the chief of the Lachmids. In 554, Harith got revenge when he cut off a raid by Mundir and killed him. 
It was around this time that Harith's followers began to see themselves as defenders of the Christian faith rather than just federated allies of the Byzantine Empire. The idea began to spread amongst the Ghassanids that those killed defending the Christian Empire were martyrs to be accorded special status. 3. Trade was to only take place at the established custom posts, like Nisbis. 4. Dara was now accepted by the Persians as a legitimate Byzantine stronghold, but neither side was to build any new fortifications. 5. The Persians would leave Lazica and accept the country as a Byzantine protectorate. 6. Persian Christians would not be persecuted, but would also not convert any more Persians. There were several other clauses to deal with damage caused on the borders or barbarian merchants who tried to carry out black market trading and so on. And the final clause invoked the one true God, whoever he might be, to bless those who kept the peace and curse those who broke it. The signing of the treaty gives us a nice glimpse into the diplomatic realities of the ancient world. The agreement was written in Persian and Greek, side by side, and then translated into the other's language, and compared to make sure everything was stated equally. If the emphasis of a word was wrong, then it had to be haggled over. You won't try to keep out barbarian merchants. You will strive to. Every little detail was examined to stop the other side from getting one over on you. For example, the treaty was for 50 years, and explicitly excluded leap years. Don't try any of your weird astrological tricks on me. Justinian and Kusro both had to send letters saying they approved of the treaty before the final copies were sealed with wax. To maintain a 50-year peace, the Byzantines were to send yet more cash. This would amount to 30,000 gold pieces a year, the first seven years up front, and then the final three years' worth to be paid in the eighth year. Justinian was happy to secure peace on these terms, but the details were very unpopular in Constantinople. Although the Romans had long made payments to tribes beyond the frontiers, many felt that paying the Persians amounted to tribute, and a recognition of Persian superiority. We have reports of the disgust felt by some at the Persian ambassador and his entourage being allowed to walk around Constantinople with no chaperone, as if they owned the place. Grumbling about foreign policy wasn't the only domestic trouble that the emperor saw in his final years. The deems, quiet for so long, began to fight with one another again. The post-Nika generation had now grown up without the scarring memory of that occasion. Several disturbances accompanied shortages of bread or water in the capital. In one alarming incident, a bad drought set in in the summer of 563, which led to men being murdered at the water fountains. There are two more incidents from Justinian's reign that we need to cover before we can finally put him to rest. The first concerns silk. You may remember from the history of Rome that one of the empire's long-term concerns was the amount of gold they sent east each year in return for Chinese silk. The Romans loved their silk and couldn't grow it themselves, remaining largely ignorant of the process by which the Chinese extracted the thread from silkworms that lived on mulberry bushes. 
Justinian knew that most of the gold heading east was ending up in Sassanid rather than Chinese hands, and that was the real threat from his point of view. The emperor knew how important it was to maintain parity with the Persians, and to overcome this trade imbalance was one of his desires. You may also remember that back in episode 15, the Byzantines intervened in the Yemen to help the Christians of Aksum take control of the country from its Jewish king. Justinian hoped that friendly relations with Aksum would help circumvent Persian traders and bring silk into the empire via the sea, rather than the so-called Silk Road. This tactic didn't work, though as the Persians had representatives at the various Indian ports where such deals would have to be made. But by the late 550s, the emperor had found another way. The story that comes down to us is that two Christian monks smuggled silkworm eggs in a hollow cane across the Silk Road and brought them to Justinian. Historians question whether this could possibly be true, But however it happened, the emperor was able to set up a native Byzantine silk industry. Although the silk produced in Europe was never quite the same quality as the Chinese, meaning the trade with the East didn't cease, it did help balance the scales. And by making the new industry a state monopoly, the emperor added more assets to the imperial ledger. This monopoly involved the takeover of some existing cloth manufacturers yet another source of discontent about the emperor's interference in the private business of wealthy citizens. The second incident will have a much larger impact on the history of Byzantium going forward. Off in the steppe lands to the north and east of the empire, another convulsion took place around the 560s. There's no point in me wading into events we know little about, but it did involve the fall of the Hephthalites and the rise of Turkic nomads who worked with the Persians to bring their enemies down. The fallout of this conflict led to yet another group of horse-archer steppe nomads moving west into the orbit of Byzantium. The new people have come down to us as the Avars. As usual, we have little idea of their ethnic makeup and social structures until they come more fully into contact with the empire. But at this point, the Byzantines didn't see a lot of difference between them and the Huns who would come before them, and the results were eerily similar. As the Avars swept west, they were told of the rich empire to the south and of the emperor who was known to pay tribes or give them lands to settle. Avar envoys made the long journey to Constantinople to demand just such treatment, and made quite an impression on the people of the capital. The men who arrived were large, outlandish-looking, with their hair hanging down their backs in long ponytails. If you have an image of Karl Drogo in your mind, then I'm right there with you. Justinian knew little of the Avars, but wanting to be on friendly terms indicated that subsidies would come if the Avars could subdue the empire's enemies on their northern border. The emperor did not realise quite how effective the Avars would be. 
Within a few years, they had subdued the Kutrigas, the Utigas, and large groups of Slavs and Bulgars, enrolling them into the Avar state in much the same way the Huns had done. By 562, the Avars received their subsidies as they sat menacingly on the Danube. Although they hadn't subdued all of the tribes in the region, they soon would, and would recreate the menace that had contributed so greatly to the fall of the Western Empire. But now we come to the end. As I mentioned last episode, as Justinian moved from his 70s into his 80s, he became increasingly concerned with theology above all else. Clearly the emperor's mind could not rest until he had united the church. By 564, he had come across another theological angle with which he hoped to bring the Monophysites back in line. But the doctrine he announced his support for was an extreme Monophysite position, which he had somehow convinced himself would bring general agreement. It seems like Justinian had finally lost touch with reality. The bishops of the East fretted awkwardly over how to oppose a doctrine they considered heretical, without causing massive ructions within the church. Fortunately for everyone, Justinian died before he could press the issue. The emperor passed away peacefully on November the 14th, 565. He was 83 years old and had ruled the empire for 38 very memorable years. The emperor had lived a long life. The only one of his contemporaries who outlived him was Narses, who was still organizing Italy for his master. Even Belisarius, a much younger man, died a few months before Justinian. That long and eventful life has dominated my thoughts for about a year now. So I have no pithy Mike Duncan-style summation of his life. In fact, probably the hardest thing to continue from the history of Rome is Mike's ability to keep the flow of the whole of Roman history always present in the narrative. When Mike got to his concluding remarks about an emperor... It always felt like what he was saying flowed smoothly from what we had learnt about that particular Augustus during the preceding episodes. I can't match that skill and need more time to work through what Justinian's reign means and how to properly assess it. So I will be back next week to offer a post-mortem on the reign of Justinian and I will do my best to keep it succinct and not reiterate things that you've spent the last year listening to. The really good news is that although Justinian's journey is over, ours is not. The fundraising sale has been so encouraging that I will be continuing on with the history of Byzantium with no pause. Once more, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who bought the episode. Each of you has helped convince me that this can be part of my daily routine and hopefully continue all the way to 1453. There will have to be other fundraisers as we go, and I promise when that day comes to have the podcast available in iTunes and compatible with iPhones and iPads and all of those problems which some of you have had to put up with. And if you haven't bought the episode yet, please still consider doing so as it pushes back the day when I need to ask for your support again.
Having said that, can I ask you for one more favor? If you use iTunes, please can you give the show a review? It's the best way to help the podcast find new listeners who can contribute their support and keep this thing going. Thank you in advance. As usual, you can get hold of me at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on the Facebook page. And next week, we finally say goodbye to Flavius, Petrus, Sabatius, Justinianus, Augustus. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.